Thank you for tuning in to the Tulsa Bible Church Sermons Podcast. You are listening to Pastor Jared Verweel as he continues his sermon series on generosity. If you would like more information, you can visit our website at tulsabible.org. We're going to start a, um, a brand new sermon series just for the next four weeks. I'm calling this Generosity. Um, and just helping us get over the possession obsession that we have and the materialism, the things that we fight in our culture. Um, I don't, this is just a, it's a good reminder. There's nothing at TBC where I'm saying um, elders are, are talking, hey, we need to do something to get the giving up. Uh, TBC has a, has a great history and legacy of being a very generous church, a sacrificially giving church. Uh, where you, the men and women that you see as you look around in this room this morning, there's a well over a handful that have taken responsibility upon themselves as stewards of what God has given to them to make sure that the gospel goes forth from TBC into Tulsa and into the world. Uh, we support over 50 plus missionaries around the world, domestic, international. Every single dollar that you give here at TBC goes to so much more than just what you're seeing in terms of our, our staff salaries, this building, and keeping operations going. Um, and it's an amazing thing to, to watch the body of Christ respond to the call to give. People take that seriously. They can't take it, you guys can't take your resources with you when you go. You're not going to find, it's the old country song says, you're not going to find any luggage racks on a hearse anytime soon. Um, do your giving while you're living so you're knowing where it's going, right? There's, there's something about stewardship that reflects God's control over all things. There's something about being a generous, uh, joyful giver that reflects more than just helping sustain ministry operations, but it reflects the heart and uh, your service to Christ. And so those of you in this room that have, that have given faithfully to TBC, year after year and, and time after time, I just want to encourage you and I want to say thank you for your generosity in giving. Uh, for those of you who aren't engaged in giving toward gospel efforts, this is a responsibility that we have as stewards. What you have is not your own. We are not owners. Everything that we have belongs to God. We're going to see a couple passages that reflect that in the scriptures today. And so, so we're just going to bounce around. What I want you to do Every other sermon that I have, the three that follow this one, we're going to stay in one specific passage. This is the one where I'm going to bounce around a little bit. Now, I just want you to turn to Genesis to start with. We're going to start in Genesis. We're going to refer to Ephesians toward the middle of the sermon, and then I'm going to end in Hebrews. Okay, so Genesis, Ephesians, Hebrews, and you're going to see a lot of slides and different thoughts and verses along the way as we, as we give somewhat of a biblical theology of giving this morning. And, uh, and I hope it encourages you in your walk with Christ. So. A couple of statistics to get us going and thinking about generosity, just some trends. Uh, these, these things are constantly shifting. This is, these are pretty well known. They've been out for several years now. There's nothing groundbreaking here, but uh, for those of you who might not follow these statistics, I do want to share them with you. Only 5% of normal church attenders tithe. Now, 
Uh, tithing, we would say, is not strictly a New Testament uh, admonition for us. It's a really good practice that's carried over from the Old Testament. There's certainly nothing, nothing wrong with tithing. When you get to the New Testament, there's actually an extra parameter for giving that operates under the grace of God. We give everything back to God as a reflection of what he has given to us. So, but only, only 5% of normal church attenders uh, in the last few years tithe. 80% of Americans give 2% of their income in general. Christians and non-Christians, 80% of Americans give 2% of their income, which I think is, is pretty shocking considering that uh, North America, America, United States here is considered the wealthiest country in the nation. Uh, we have over 30% of the world's wealth is right here in America and the United States. And, and 2% is, it's a low, it's a low number. The average American adult gives a whopping $900 a year. It's $17 a week. Um, you know, how much did you spend on coffee this week? Some of us, that's probably well above $17. How much are you going to spend just to go out to lunch today, even? During the Great Depression, I, th I think this is a startling statistic. During the Great Depression, Christians gave 3.3% of their income back to churches. Do you know what people give to churches today? It's 2.5%. In general, as, as a church in this nation, we give less to local churches than people did during the Great Depression, statistically speaking. 30%, 37% of evangelical Christians do not give to their local church. Over, over a third of Christians today don't give to their local church. Those who do tithe, 77% of tithers actually give over 10%. Not only are they, are they giving a normal percentage of their income off the top, but 77% um, give more than that. Special projects, special needs that might arise, maybe even some missionaries. Who gives the most in churches? 75% of donors come from the female gender rather than the male. The, the ladies are much bigger givers than the guys. Just an interesting statistic. Here's, a, here's one that I found this week that I thought was kind of startling. The faster a church is growing, the less people are giving. The faster a church is growing, the less people are giving. So per person giving is far greater in dying or stagnant churches than it is in growing churches. Doesn't seem to compute, but that's what the statistics say. You know what Mark Twain said about statistics, right? I've shared this quote with you before, I won't share it again. Finally, what happens when, that was like, I set you up there and then I just let you down. Sorry about that. What happens when churches teach on giving? It's, it's interesting, David Jeremiah, you get, hear him on the radio? The DTS pastor, great pastor out in California. He teaches two or three sermons on giving every January. The two to three sermons following Christmas. Every single year, he teaches on giving just to start the year out right after Christmas. Typically, giving in churches is down, as well as summer times. Those are two of the down times that churches uh, ebb and flow in their cycles. 
8% of churches never, ever, ever teach on giving. I've been told at TBC by many people, I've been here for a long, long time, they can't remember the last time we had a sermon on giving. It's been that long. Bob, you remember last time? It's been, it's been way back in the past, a long time ago. So don't, don't shoot the messenger is what I'm, what I'm telling you right now. Uh, 36% of churches teach on giving quarterly or at least annually. So about a third of churches teach a quarterly sermon on giving, maybe in your Sunday school classes, at least an annual sermon. Of the churches that teach on giving weekly, some churches actually say something about giving each week and some part of their service, more than just passing the bucket or taking up a collection offering. Of those churches, 9% of churches do teach on giving on a weekly basis. Of those churches, 90% experience increase of, of donations. 90% of them. When there's the a refrain of biblical teaching over and over again, uh, typically believers respond to that. Getting to the Gospels and some, some biblical admonitions here, 15% of everything that Jesus taught had to do with giving. Now, when you say that 15% number, just to kind of capture this in a very fair way, any parable, any teaching of Jesus that has to do with a money amount, um, a reference to the rich or to the poor, 15%. So Jesus gave about 39, 40 parables. If you look through the Gospels and you uh, synch synchronistically kind of compare them with one another, there's 39 or 40 individual parables. That means exactly 11 involve money at some level. That's more than he spoke about both heaven and hell combined. That's more than he spoke about both faith and prayer combined. Jesus talks about money a lot. And so why does Jesus talk about money so much in the parables and in the New Testament and the Gospels? As Christians, we're all, always in danger of compartmentalizing our lives. You know, there's the secular person, and then there's the religious person. There's our church life, then there's our work life. There's the temporary, and then there's the eternal. One of the reasons that Jesus talks about giving so much and at least about money so much in the Gospels is that he was adamantly against compartmentalizing. He didn't want any Christian to be somebody different in different contexts. You were always the same person. That's what it means to be a person of integrity. You're whole. You're always the same. He was adamantly against compartmentalizing, and he would not allow us to divorce faith from finances. You cannot divorce faith from finances. In fact, finances is often the, the greatest indicator of where our faith is. I'm going to look at the, this passage in the next few weeks about Jesus. One of, his, one of his most famous sermons that he ever taught was the Sermon on the Mount. And in it, there, Matthew chapter 6, there's a statement that goes something like this. Where your treasure is, there your heart is also. Our hearts tend to gravitate towards the things that we treasure the most. And so what that means is our credit card statements are revealing. They reveal where our dollars land, but they also reveal what our hearts long for. If Jesus and the Apostle Paul were going to look at your credit card statement, what would show up? What would be indicated there? 
For the next several weeks, we're going to go through this sermon. Again, I've entitled this Generosity. It's the Gospel Cure for Possession Obsession. And we're going to look at four things as we go through this sermon series. We're going to talk about the basics, belonging, beauty, and the blessing of giving. First today, we're going to talk about giving redemptively, the basics of giving. Next week, we'll talk about belonging and giving passionately. Thirdly, we'll talk about the beauty of giving, giving sacrificially. Fourthly, the blessing, giving joyfully. And why are we doing this? Um, mostly, just, this is just a good reminder. Teaching on giving is like teaching on pride. It's, there are sermons that you can give every single Sunday that are going to be good reminders for us, just to check our hearts, make sure that we're aligned to the things of Christ operating as stewards rather than owners. Not many years ago, there was a statistic, and I think this is shocking, so that Americans shop six hours per week, the typical American, and that same typical American spends 40 minutes with their kids per week. We are disproportionately more concerned about consuming than we are even about raising our kids, and that's something that we need to deal with in the church. Randy Alcorn said that recently more Americans, there was a recent year, more Americans declared bankruptcy than graduated from college. I think that's indicative, indicative of where our country is. We live in a time when viruses are spreading, but materialism is definitely the plague of our day. We must guard our hearts carefully, and so let's talk about a biblical theology of giving. Number one, this morning, number one in your outline, stewardship. Think as a steward, not as an owner. I shared the story with you before. It's worth repeating. There was once a really distraught man who rode up on his horse frantically to John Wesley, waving his hands and crying out to him, drew him to a complete halt from where they were going. And he said, Mr. Wesley, Mr. Wesley, something terrible has happened. Your house caught fire and it has burned to the ground. Mr. Wesley weighed those statements very carefully, thought about them carefully before he responded when he said, no, the Lord's house burned to the ground, and that's just one less responsibility for me. Scripture begins with an account of God's creation, all right? And where we start with a biblical theology of giving is we start with a creator God. Look down at your text, Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. should say something like this. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. It goes into another summary statement, verse 2, the earth was without form and void, darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. We have an account here that says that everything begins with God. God was before all things, he will be after all things. God is always there. There is no beginning as a word when we think about the character and the nature of God. God was at the beginning and he created all things, including money, wealth, possessions. Colossians chapter 1, verses 16 and 17 say the same thing in the New Testament. For by him, referring to Christ now, all things were created in heaven and on the earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions, rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. He is the agency of creation. He is also the end, the pinnacle of creation. He's the source as well as everything leads to God. Since God is the creator of all things, it also holds that he owns all things. All things belong to God. Listen to these verses in Psalms. 
that talk about God as creator on the one hand, but also the owner of all things on the other. Psalm 24, verses 1 and 2, The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein, for he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. The earth and creation belongs to God because he created it. Psalm 50, verse 10 and 11, For every beast of the forest is mine, a cattle on a thousand hills. I know all the birds of the hills and all that moves in the field is mine. It belongs to God. Psalm 100, verse 3, a very famous verse. Know that the Lord, he is God. It is he who made us. We are his. We are his people, the sheep of his pasture. Biblical theology of giving starts with God as creator, and therefore God as owner. And out of his overwhelming goodness to us, as his image bearers, God chose to share what he's created with mankind for our good, for his purposes, and ultimately for his glory. Skip down to Genesis 1, verse 29, towards the end of the chapter. Genesis 1, 29. God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of the earth, all the earth, every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food, and to every beast of the earth and every bird of the heavens and everything that creeps on the earth... Everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And as the creation account goes to say, and it was so. Even before the fall, prior Genesis 3 here, God created all things. He gave man a responsibility to subdue the earth, to fill the earth, to multiply, so that by their work, by their labor, they would yield the produce of the fields and the bounty of God's blessing and that they might enjoy the things that God has given to man. At the beginning, the Bible says that God gave us things as his good gifts out of his goodness to enjoy, and that was a good thing for his people. He taught us about God's goodness. These passages remind us of God's blessing to us, and they help humanity to flourish by depending on God by growing our faith in God. There's a really penetrating question that really gets the foundation of all of our hearts when it comes to giving. It comes out of 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 7. And if you write in the margins of your Bibles, I would encourage you just to put this little cross-reference right next to those Genesis passages that we just looked at. 1 Corinthians 4, verse 7, the Apostle Paul simply asks this, What do you have that you did not receive? What in your life do you have that you did not receive? Imagine if you took a package to the UPS store Tuesday after the holiday. You tell the person, the attendant at the counter, said, I want to send this package back to my family. They're out of state in Alabama. Will you please box it up, wrap the tape around it, put a label on it, I'll pay for it, and send it on its way. Imagine if that UPS attendant just thought to himself, sure, I'll do all that, waits for you to leave, then opens the package for himself, takes out those goods that you are trying to send to a family member and just keeps it for themselves. Just, just because they thought they could. You are giving me this, I'm gonna do what I want with it instead. Randy Alcorn in his book, Treasure Principle, he's got a, a really good thought. 
Because whenever we think like owners, it's a red flag. We should be thinking like stewards, always looking for the best places to invest God's money. Biblical theology of giving starts with stewardship. We are stewards. We're not owners. Everything we have has been given to us from God. And so we operate how he wants us to with those possessions and with those things. Number two, money should not raise your standard of living as much as your standard of giving. Money should not raise your standard of living as much as your standard of giving. Uh, Flip a couple pages to Genesis chapter 3. Let's look at the fall here, verse 6. So we continue to explore biblical theology of giving. Uh, So much of all my theology, practical theology, and understanding doctrines of the faith are all captured in Genesis 1 through 3. Uh, Genesis 1 and 2 depict the perfect creation of God. Genesis 3 shows how everything went out of whack. Look at Genesis 3, skip down to verse 6. Satan, of course, comes and tempts the woman to eat from the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Verse 6, so when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that's the first thing, that it was a delight to the eyes, number two, and that the tree was desired to make one wise, number three, she took of its fruit and ate. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate, and the the eyes of both of them were open. Now, Satan can't create anything. Satan is not creator. He is not the owner of the things that God has created. All he can do is take the things that God has created and use them inversely for his purposes, for his desires instead. It was God that created the family unit. All Satan can do is take the family unit and use it for his own purposes, inversely in ways that God did not design it to be used. Sin is essentially taking something that God has created for good and using it for evil instead. Sin is something that God, taking something that God has created for good and using it for evil instead. Augustine, the church father, famously said that our core problem in life is not a lack of finances, resources, healthcare, or technology. Augustine said our core problem is that the human heart ignoring God turns in on itself. The Latin phrase he used was incurvitus in se. Sin is, is a literally a curving of the in, inward self upon the self. And so if you sin with your mouth, over time you will find that your language, your speech, the way that you conduct yourself is continually deteriorating. It's getting worse and worse because sin, again, is, is curving in on itself. If you sin with your hands, you will find that maybe you become a more violent person over time. The destruction, the violence occurs, and it strengthens over time because it's curving in on you. Uh, this is how addictions work. This is how sin works. All sin is not addiction, but all sin is addictive in its nature, and that's how it works. Uh, there's a quote from C.S. Lewis in Screwtape Letters. He says this. I think I've got this for you. Uh, Screwtape Letters is a uh, senior demon teaching a, a younger demon, Wormwood, how to tempt people, how to tempt Christians. It's a fictitious story written by C.S. Lewis, really good. 
It says, it's funny how mortals always picture us as putting things into their minds, speaking of, of demonic inputs. It's funny how mortals always picture us as putting things into their minds. In reality, our best work is always done by keeping things out. So Satan's best work is by keeping things out of our minds. Maybe in generosity, we would say Satan's best work is by keeping out a passion to be generous with the things that we have, the things that God has entrusted with us, uh, a love for others, a true God focus instead of being a, a self-focused, curved in upon ourselves sinners. I want you to turn from Genesis chapter 3 here that depicts mankind turning in on itself by those three things that I mentioned in verse 6. I want you to turn to Ephesians chapter 4. Skip over to Ephesians 4 and look down at verse 28. Thanks for your, your patience as we flip through a few passages today. Ephesians 4, verse 28. And there's, uh, people have taken this verse and made it an entire theology of, of giving and of greed based on this verse. Pretty interesting. It's just kind of tucked away here at the end of Ephesians 4. Ephesians 4, 28. Let the thief no longer steal but ra rather let him labor doing honest work with his own hands so that, so that he might have something to share with anyone in need. Now, this passage in Ephesians is on the latter half of this book where Paul has shifted drastically from heavy theology, informational theology, now to practical theology. Ephesians 1 through 3 was all about information, our identity in Christ, talking a lot about the gospel, Ephesians 4 through 6 is all about application and how we live out the truths of the gospel. And all of it falls under the heading of walking in a manner that is worthy of the Lord. Uh, walk as imitators of Christ. Ephesians chapter 5 will go on to say, walk as children of light, not as those who are still in the darkness. Over and over again, you'll see this theme. You ever hear the word klepto before? Or kleptomaniac? Somebody who's, who's always stealing things from other people. This is the Greek word that you have in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 28. In fact, it's used twice. Let the klepto, the thief, no longer klepteto, steal. It's a, it's a reiteration of the same root Greek word to bring out exactly what's going on in the context. Twice referring to the same root, root word. Rather, do honest work, labor with your hands... Honest, there's a Greek word for doing good. Agathon is the word. Do a good work with your own hands. Labor in a good work. The startling aspect of Ephesians 4.28, though, is it's not the comparison at the beginning of the verse. It's the purpose at the end of the verse. Paul doesn't just provide a shift in profession from being a thief to an honest worker. He gives a shift in perspective, a reason to be an honest worker. Notice, Paul doesn't say to stop stealing in, in, orderly, in order to lawfully abide, to be a more moral person. He says stop stealing in order to honestly provide for others. 
and to be generous with what God has given you. The shift is from something that is self-focused to another pattern of life that is God-focused and Christ-centered. In other words, the self-centered thief should not become the self-centered worker. That's not the answer. The self-centered thief should become the God-centered, God-focused, generous person. Great jobs shouldn't lead to greed. Great jobs should lead to generosity because money shouldn't raise your standard of living as much as it should raise your standard of giving. Money shouldn't raise your standard of living as much as it should raise your standard of giving. Number three, the heart moves toward what it desires the most. And this is the exclamation point on a biblical theology of giving. The heart moves toward what it desires the most. We're going to flesh this out more in one of the weeks to come, but I want to just touch on it briefly. You would think that our culture and our society would get this. How many more celebrities have to die or commit suicide before we realize as a people group that all the money in the world will never ultimately make you happy? How many people are going to suffer and die and sacrifice their families, their relationships, everything on the altar of gaining more possessions and wealth for themselves before we wake up? You ever hear the song, All You Need Is Love? All you need is love. Robert, it ain't true. I mean, you're going to starve to death if you think all you need is love, all right? You need air, you need to eat, you need to breathe. <laughs> There's many things you need. I mean, love, I'm not going to dismiss it, Rachel, Derek, it's important. Y'all are in love. I, I know you are, but you can't live on love. You need more than that. And you can't live on wealth and money. You need much more than that for an existence, and especially for happiness that would honor God. And so let me just give you a few people who are convinced that wealth would change their life. You ever hear of this guy called Vanderbilt before? Anybody know? They named a university after him. Uh, New York, Fifth Avenue, New York. You ever hear of that? Well, those houses, historic mansions were primarily built by this guy, right? $200 million is what he amassed in a very short amount of time in railroads as a philanthropist. He was a builder, very historic name. Here's what he said. The care of $200 million is enough to kill anyone. There is no pleasure in it. The gilded age rich man. Ever hear the, the fall of the house of Vanderbilt? Vanderbilt himself lived and died a wealthy man. His sons, first generation, also lived and died wealthy men. The generation after that had nothing. They lost it all. It's one generation before it was pretty much all gone. How about John Jacob Astor? Astor, anybody say in an Astor Hotel anytime? Me neither. I can't afford them. Uh, I'm the most miserable man on earth after he acquired so much wealth. Andrew Carnegie, millionaires seldom smile, is what he said. Henry Ford. You guys been out to Henry Ford's uh, Michigan? You ever toured his plantation, his home out there? It's, it's actually a really great vacation spot, and I would encourage you to, to go there. It's uh, close up Mackinac Island. We went up there not too long ago as a family. 
It's, a, it's an amazing place. Henry Ford, toward the end of his life, since he was much happier doing a mechanics job. I love this thought from Randy Alcorn again in his book, Treasure Principle. He says, nothing makes a journey more difficult than a heavy backpack filled with nice but unnecessary things. Nothing makes a journey more difficult than a heavy backpack that's filled with nice but unnecessary things. In Matthew chapter 13, 44 is the context where Jesus is just telling parable after parable about the kingdom of God. One of his most famous parables is about the, the treasure that was hidden in the field. He says, the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, and I love that phrase after that transition, in his joy, he goes, he sells all that he has, and he buys that field. Seeing the truth of what he needed the most in the eternal perspective. A biblical theology of giving will ground us on at least four things. Number one, God created everything, therefore God owns everything. We are stewards. We are not owners. Number two, we are stewards, and stewards are held accountable for what the owner wants, not what we want. We are stewards, and we are held accountable for what the owner wants, not what we want. Number three, sin makes us self-centered. The gospel helps us become Christ-centered. Sin makes us self-centered. The gospel helps us to become Christ-centered and kingdom-oriented. Number four, Christ became poor and lost everything that we might become rich and gain everything. Christ became poor and lost everything that we might become rich and gain everything. Jim Elliott's a famous uh, missionary. I encourage you to talk to anybody on our missions team. They'll talk to you not only about Jim Elliott, but missionaries that are sent out from Tulsa Bible Church on the heels of his ministry into frontier territories to share the gospel. And he says that he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. I want to end and just turn to Hebrews chapter 11. We're going to read just a few verses and a couple quick points of application to wrap up this introduction here. Hebrews 11 Turn to this great chapter of, of the Hall of Faith, and we're going to read about Moses in just a few short verses here. First point of application as we think about a theology of giving the reproach of Christ today is better than the treasures of Egypt tomorrow. The reproach of Christ today, biblically speaking, is better than the treasures of Egypt tomorrow. Hebrews 11 is, of course, the faith chapter in the New Testament, and perhaps nobody gets as much coverage as Moses. Skip down to verse 23. It begins, and it says, By faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents because they saw that the child was beautiful, and they were not afraid of the king's edict. Verse 24. By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasure of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. Verse 27, by faith he left Egypt, not being afraid of the anger of the king, for he endured, seeing him who is invisible. By faith he kept the Passover and sprinkled the blood, and it goes on to talk about it. 
Paul reminds us to keep an eternal perspective when we think about giving and the things that God has entrusted with us. In 2 Corinthians 4.18, he says, we look not to the things which are seen, but instead Christians look to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are temporary, but the things that are unseen are eternal. When we look to the reproach of Christ today rather than the treasures of Egypt tomorrow, it gives us an eternal perspective toward everything that God has given us. It gives our lives direction, cause, and purpose beyond what this world can offer into eternity and what the kingdom can offer. Number two, I'm going to talk just briefly about contentment. Contentment looks in, not out. Contentment looks in, not out. Skip over to Hebrews chapter 13 and look down at verse 5. Contentment will be one of these key themes we come back to over and over again. Verse 5, keep your life free from the love of money. Here's a marriage counseling for you guys. Um, Hebrews 13, skip back up to verse 4. Let the marriage be held in honor among all. Let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. So you got a, a verse 4 on sex, verse 5 on money. You know what your two biggest fights are going to be in marriage? Sex and money. Just take it by faith. The writer of Hebrews told us that centuries ago. It still holds true for the day. Today, if, if you are a walking, cold-blooded American, you've probably experienced that in your married life as well. Keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Verse 6, so we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? One of my favorite books is in the Chronicles of Narnia is The Horse and His Boy. And it's about Shasta, who's an orphan boy, uh, just abused, runs away from, from slavery, from mistreatment. And he has a friend named Erebus. And Erebus and Shasta are being chased by a huge lion. It's Aslan. They don't know about it. But Aslan, as he's chasing, especially Erebus, this girl, takes out his huge claws and just scrapes her back over and over again and causes her all this pain and suffering. And Shasta doesn't understand. He finally meets Aslan, and, and they, they have a, a come-to-Aslan, a come-to-Jesus moment, uh, metaphorically speaking. He doesn't understand why did you scrape Erebus's back so much? Why did you cause her so much pain? And Aslan responds, he says, I'm telling you your story, Shasta, not hers. I tell no one any story but their own. It's a really interesting principle. Whenever we think about money, we're always very tempted to peer over the fence. Whenever we think about our possessions, we're always just tempted with comparisons. Why don't I have more money than that person? Why can't I have as big of a house as, as that neighbor? What did I do that was wrong that I didn't get to this spot in my career and my family life? Why is this person married and I'm not married? Why are they rich and I'm poor? Why did he get the promotion and, and she didn't? Difficult circumstances almost always invite a gaze of comparison, a longing to get out of where we are 
so that we might get to another place instead. And we never stop to just think about what God has done for us and really who God is anyway. Hebrews 13, verse 6, The Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can God do to me? I will never leave you nor forsake you. Sometimes I think we get so caught up with the worries of the world that we lose contentment along the way because we lose our sight of God. Gratitude and contentment are the antidote for greed, covetousness. Number three, contentment looks up, not down. Contentment looks up, not down. So inflation is at record highs today. Gas prices, pretty high up there. Uh, things are happening in our economy that they don't look like they're going to change anytime soon. Um, Jeremiah Burroughs is a really great uh, Puritan writer. You find him back 1600s, 1700s. He wrote a book on contentment, and he defined it in this way. I think this is good. He says, contentment is that sweet, inward, quiet, gracious frame of spirit which freely submits to and delights in God's wise and fatherly disposal in every circumstance. Freely submits to and delights in God's wise and fatherly disposal in every circumstance. Contentment recognizes that our circumstances from, come from a God who is good. Our circumstances also come from a God who is in control of all things. He owns all things. And therefore, since we do serve not just a great God, but a good God, he can be trusted and loved, even in the worst of circumstances, in the darkest of hours. Let's pray. Father in heaven, um, Lord, I just come to you on behalf of Tulsa Bible Church out of gratitude. Standing up here, um, I really am tempted to think that people provide my salary, people provide our church staff's salary. It's hard, it's hard for me to talk about giving in, in many respects as a pastor. But then I know that at the foundation, the, the truth is, is that you are the supplier of all needs. You are the God who provides all things not only for me and for my family, but also for everybody who's here. Uh, there's very little we have that hasn't been given to us out of your good, gracious care and love for us. God, as we, uh, as we go through these summer months and month of July and talk about giving, I just I pray that you would give us a heart of stewardship, not ownership. I pray that you'd give us a heart of contentment with thanksgiving for who you are and what you're doing. I pray that we'd be able to look past the pleasures of Egypt today and look forward to the kingdom of God tomorrow. Give us an eternal perspective, the way that we live our life, the things that we contribute to. Help us to realize that everything we have is from you and help us to be found faithful as stewards. We pray this to you, Father, through the Son and by the Spirit, for you three are the one true God, and there is no God besides you. Amen.